Raise your words, not your voice. It is rain that grows flowers, not thunder. That is a quote by Rumi, a poet from the 13th century. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Last week, I took a much-needed break from podcasting and newsletter writing to do something that you all probably want me to work on even more, which is my book. We are down to the wire, folks. All recipes have been developed and photographed, and most of them have been edited. About half of them have been finalized for submission. In other words, we are getting very, very close. I can feel it. And for those of you who are inclined, if you would like a sneak peek of what we're looking at, you can take a look at the link below. Now that we have the obligatory update out of the way, on to more important things like the subject of this week's podcast, the power of words. My friend Brett, who's a former law firm partner and now a federal judge, he always loved to share the story about one of his clients from Germany. During a deposition, the main witness for his client gave testimony on the company's business plan. Very innocent, right? Just this is the business plan for the year. But because the word for plan is schema, in German, which obviously sounds a lot like scheme, the witness used the word scheme when he was testifying instead of the word plan. Well, the jury went to town on the word scheme, inferring everything that a native English speaker would inject into that word, you know, fraud, conspiracy, malice, etc., resulting in a rather unfavorable verdict for Brett's client. So, While it's true that actions probably matter more, words still matter. Like many of you, the past several days, I've been grappling with the meaning of words I'd never taken the time to investigate. I've seen them thrown around a lot on social media, in the news, and even at dinner parties. But as my brother learned the very hard way when he once used the word negligee instead of negligent, It's important to know exactly what a word means before you use it yourself. These days, it's not just about making sure you don't look like an idiot, although that's a huge part. It's also about making sure you don't give the wrong impression, as was the case with Brett's client, or worse yet, inadvertently hurting people who have occasion to read or listen to your words. So for this week's podcast, I thought I'd share with you the definitions of words for which I required clarity as it relates to the ongoing turmoil in the Middle East in alphabetical order. I suspect some or all of these words will be old hat to some of you, but I try to include a few factoids for each that might be news to you. If, how, and when you employ or deploy these words is entirely up to you. So let's get started. The first word I am going to share with you is apartheid. 
Believe it or not, the word apartheid was actually coined by a member of the white supremacist National Party that came into power in South Africa in the late 1940s. Specifically, one Daniel Malin originated the term apartheid, which comes from the Dutch word literally translating into a state of separateness, to refer to the policies and legislations that segregated white from non-white Afrikaners with the aim of protecting the, quote, white minority. In other words, the very people who were enacting systemic racism were so self unaware, they proudly coined their own word for it. Such legislation included the geographical, educational, and marital segregation of white and non-white Afrikaners, as well as the unilateral disenfranchisement of non-white Afrikaners. The National Party began to erode the Bantu's right to vote in 1956, and by 1969, the voting electorate was exclusively white. In 1961, the National Party enacted the Indemnity Act, which essentially made it legal to torture and kill non-white Afrikaners. Some have tied the definition of the term apartheid directly to its origin. Quote, apartheid was a political system in South Africa in which people were divided into racial groups and kept apart by law. Unquote. This is from Collins. This begs the question then, now that apartheid has been dismantled in South Africa, has the word become obsolete? According to the Cornell Law School's Legal Information Institute, a website I frequented in my practicing lawyer days, quote, apartheid refers to the implementation and maintenance of a system of legalized racial segregation in which one racial group is deprived of political and civil rights. Apartheid is a crime against humanity, punishable under the Rome Statute of the International criminal court, unquote. Indeed, the LII, the Legal Information Institute, confronts the notion of obsolescence head-on by explaining apartheid is not considered an antiquated regime. Several human rights organizations highlighted that apartheid regimes and policies currently live on in certain areas of the world, unquote. Other dictionaries define the term generally independent from the politics of South Africa. For example, according to Merriam-Webster, apartheid refers to segregation on the basis of race or other categories of identity, for example, gender and culture. Another way of putting it is the, quote, institutionalized discriminatory system of restricted contact between races. That's the Oxford Dictionary. At least one dictionary, the Cambridge Dictionary, has incorporated a disparity in political power resulting from or leading to the segregation. Quote, a system of keeping groups of people separate and treating them differently, especially when this results in disadvantage for one group. So those are the various definitions of apartheid, and hopefully you've gained some insight on where this term comes from and what it means today. The next word on my little glossary is genocide. 
combining the Greek word for race or tribe, genos, with the Latin word for kill, side, the term genocide was actually created in 1943 by the Jewish-Polish lawyer Raphael Lemkin. Dr. Lemkin petitioned to have the word genocide recognized as a war crime under the international law after the Holocaust in which every single member of his family except his brother was killed. Viewed as the crime of crimes in the wake of World War II, genocide is, quote, the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. And that comes from the Oxford Dictionary. The United Nations provides an even more specific definition in its Convention on the Prevention and Punishment on the Crime of Genocide. Any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. What does, quote, intent to destroy actually mean, though? Well, according to the international case law, genocidal intent requires that acts must be committed against members of a group specifically because they belong to that group. Notably, the law does not require a finding that the act was committed solely because of membership in that group. Also notable is the fact that one, both an individual or a group, can be guilty of inciting genocide merely by directly and publicly inciting others to commit genocide, even if no such act of genocide actually occurs as a result. One thing to keep in mind, genocide refers specifically to the intended eradication or destruction of a certain nation or group, not the incidental destruction of that nation or group. In other words, the mass murder of thousands of individuals who are members of a nation or group that occurs incidental or collateral to some other objective may not necessarily rise to the level of genocide. Accordingly, some experts have raised concerns about its conflation with other massive international crimes like slavery, for example. Quote, slavery is called genocide when, whatever it was, and it was infamy, it was a system to exploit rather than to exterminate the living. That's a quote by Michael Ignatieff, former director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University. For most people today, the term genocide is inextricably linked to the Holocaust for good reason. The Holocaust resulted in the death of more than 6 million Jews, and it was the stated intent of the Nazi party, i.e. the final solution, to destroy European Jews. Another recent example of genocide as defined by the UN Convention is Rwanda, where an estimated 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus died in the 1994 genocide. 
Going way back in history, many believe the first recorded genocide occurred in the mid-140s BCE, when the Romans besieged the city of Carthage and spent the next several days systematically destroying the land and its people. I actually learned in Latin class that the Romans literally salted the ground before they left. The next word in my list is terrorism. Many folks in the United States will still see the Twin Towers whenever they hear the word terrorism. Because for most of us, that was our first real close encounter with terrorists. The FBI provides the following two-part definition of terrorism. International terrorism constitutes violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups who are inspired by or associated with designated foreign terrorist organizations or nations, i.e. state-sponsored violence. Domestic terrorism constitutes violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as those of a political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. I don't know about you, but I found at least the definition of international terrorism to be, quite frankly, a little confusing and vague. For starters, what qualifies as a, quote, designated foreign terrorist organization or nation? Well, at least here in the United States, a designated foreign terrorist organization, or FTO, is a foreign organization that is designated by the U.S. Secretary of State in accordance with Section 219 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, as a result of engaging in terrorist activity under the INA. Terrorist activity is defined as the following. Any activity which is unlawful under the laws of the place where it is committed, or which, if committed in the United States, would be unlawful under the laws of the United States or any state, and which involves any of the following. And for purposes of this podcast, I'm going to paraphrase some of this because this is long. Hijacking or sabotage of any conveyance. The seizing or detaining or threatening to kill, injure, or continue to detain another individual in order to compel a third person to do or abstain from doing anything, i.e. a hostage situation. A violent attack upon an intentionally protected person, an assassination, and the use of any biological, chemical agent, or nuclear weapon or device, explosive, firearm, weapon, or device with intent to endanger directly or indirectly the safety of one or more individuals or to cause substantial damage to property, and of course, a threat, attempt, or conspiracy to do any of the things I just listed. In addition to groups, the United States also designates states, i.e. countries, nations, who have provided support for acts of international terrorism. Links to these lists, i.e. the groups and the states, will be included in the notes below. Now, in reading the above, one thing did stick out to me. There was that section that defined a terrorist act as the use of an explosive firearm or other weapon with intent to endanger the safety of one or more individuals or to cause substantial damage to property. Well, that would include basically every country or state that has ever engaged in any war or conflict ever. However, acts of war are not per se, illegal. 
And in order for an act to qualify as terrorism, remember, the act must not only cause harm or damage, it must also be illegal harm or damage. Keep in mind that what we just discussed constitutes the United States definition of terrorism. Each country will have its own laws and definitions for terrorism. While the technical definitions of terrorism are important for discussion purposes, I found the following dictionary definition to be very useful. Quote, the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians in the pursuit of political aims. And this comes from Oxford. The last word on my list is actually not a word, it's a phrase, war crime. Anyone who's watched Braveheart knows that there are certain rules of engagement, even in combat. We also learned from Braveheart that there will always be people who'll break those rules. For purposes of our discussion, when it comes to war, the rules of engagement were codified in the late 1800s, early 1900s as part of the Hague Convention. The Geneva Conventions, as amended, also adopt certain provisions that outline what qualifies as a war crime. There is no one single document out there that outlines all war crimes, and more importantly, not every nation, state, or group has agreed to either the Hague or Geneva Conventions. Accordingly, there are some states that have rejected the idea of playing by any rules of engagement when it comes to armed conflict. In 1998, the Rome Statute was adopted in order to create the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. The Rome Statute also attempts to clarify what a war crime actually is, describing it as a grave breach of the Geneva Conventions. The statute then goes on to list that any of the following acts against non-combatants, i.e. civilians, would constitute a war crime willful killing, torture, including biological experiments, extensive destruction and appropriation of property not justified by military necessity and carried out unlawfully and wantonly, unlawful deportation or transfer or unlawful confinement of civilians, and of course, the taking of hostages. Now, in addition to these acts, which were already outlined in the Geneva Conventions, the Rome Statute includes the following, quote, serious violations of laws and customs applicable in international armed conflict. And again, I'm going to paraphrase some of these for you. These are not also exhaustive. These are just kind of highlights that I picked out from the Rome Statute. Intentionally directing attacks against a civilian population. Intentionally directing attacks against civilian objects intentionally launching an attack while knowing that such attack will cause incidental loss of life or injury to civilians, which would be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. Attacking or bombarding by whatever means towns, villages, dwellings, or buildings which are undefended. Intentionally directing attacks against buildings dedicated to things like religion, education, art, science, or charitable purposes, hospitals, and places where the sick and wounded are collected, provided that they are not military objectives. 
Now, there is a humongous caveat to all of this, which I alluded to earlier. Certain countries, including the United States, have not ratified all portions of the Geneva Conventions or the Rome Statute. The United States specifically has agreed to the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, which prohibits murder, torture, and hostages, but has not agreed to be bound by the Rome Statute and potentially all of the additional war crime prohibitions set forth therein, or the ICC's, the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction and authority to try war crimes. I'm not going to list all of the other countries that haven't signed on to the Rome Statute and certain addenda or they're called protocols that were added to the Geneva Conventions. I strongly recommend that you look at that list yourself because I think the countries on there are not only eye-opening but particularly relevant to what's going on today. In other words... What constitutes a war crime can often depend on the country making that determination, and even then, it can be murky at best. Finally, it should be noted that historically speaking, only individuals, not countries, can be charged with a war crime. I think the closest a country could come to being charged with a war crime is if their sitting president, prime minister, or leader was the individual that was charged with a war crime. This is consistent with the language of the U.S.'s war crime statute, which is 18 U.S.C. section 2441, which specifically refers to, quote, the person committing a war crime. Now, as I stated at the very outset, if, when, and how you use these words, is up to you. But if you're anything like me, you want to make sure you know what you're talking about before you talk at all. And my hope is that this information is useful in gaining some clarity on what may feel pretty overwhelming at this time. Just a couple of additional updates that I wanted to bring to your attention. Number one, I am doing another live cooking class for the Korean Vegan Collective, which is my recipe app and community. I will be showing you how to make yubuchobab, which is literally one of my favorite things to eat. It's a very, very popular South Korean snack. The live cooking class will be taking place on October 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern. If you are a member of the Korean Vegan Collective, make sure to sign up for that inside of your app. Of course, if you are not a member of the Korean Vegan Collective, but you want to join in on this interactive live cooking class, as well as access to 2,000 plant-based recipes, nutritional information, food coaches, and inspiration on a daily basis, you can check out the link below and join us. And that brings us to this week's Parting Thoughts. Earlier this week, I ran 20 miles along the oceanfront here in SoCal. The Strand, is what it's called, consists of 22 miles of nearly uninterrupted bike path starting in Santa Monica and ending in Torrance Beach. Since moving here, the vast majority of my long runs entailed jogging four-mile loops around a man-made lake in Westlake Village, 
But at this point in my training, the thought of having to spend four hours and thousands of footsteps along a path that has practically etched itself into the bottoms of my feet, yeah, felt about as torturous as it sounds. I thus woke up at five in the morning, hopped into an Uber. I still haven't mastered driving the canyons, much less in the dark. Hung out in my Uber until the sun finally crept over the horizon, laced up my brand new pair of running shoes, I'm really loving my ultras these days, and stepped onto the path. For once, I kept my AirPods tucked into the back pocket of my shorts, partly because I wanted to keep my wits about me. It was still pretty dark and there weren't a lot of people on the path yet, but mostly because the waves were ferocious that morning, eating away at the shore with a kind of determination I envied, a reminder of what I'd need to complete the task ahead of me. Around three miles in, I approached an older woman around my mother's age, listening to something on her phone without earbuds as she ambled along the path. A male voice trumpeted words I couldn't understand into the air around us. It sounded like a sermon or a prayer. I heard Allah among a jumble of other words, and the woman let out a small wail a few seconds after I passed her. About a mile later, two men jogged easily in front of me while deep in conversation. They looked like the kind of men I used to work with, wardrobes full of semi-wrinkled button-down shirts, khakis, loafers, and ratty old t-shirts they'd been wearing for decades when they met their buddies for a weekly run along the Pacific. As I loped past them, I heard one of them say, man, I heard on CNN that the airstrikes before they were out of earshot. I repeated the phrase over and over again, this isn't about me, this isn't about me, this isn't about me, as like you, I've watched, read, and consumed the coverage on the Middle East. Not as a way to distance myself from my rage or my sadness or despair at what I'm seeing, but to remember that my stake in this matter is infinitesimally small compared to those who've had family members taken hostage or loved ones who've had their bodies torn apart. My story isn't the one being targeted, interrogated, and torched, and therefore now isn't the time to complain about how hard it is to go to sleep at night, how badly I wanted to turn around and hug that woman who was grieving on the path, how grateful I was that those two ordinary Joes were struggling as much as I was to make sense of my own gaping ignorance. Because this isn't about me, I haven't shared with anyone other than my husband and very close friends the amount of hostility, negativity, and outright abuse I've received in the past two weeks. I haven't ignored it, but I also haven't responded to it. Again, I keep telling myself nasty messages and comments are a cakewalk compared to those who are afraid for their lives. And these people, they're obviously in pain and terrifically afraid. I say this, but even as I say this, I'm just not sure how many more nights I can go to bed with the words, you are a coward, ringing in my ears, all while trying to process images of little children covered in ash. Why am I now sharing this with you? At the risk of centering myself after telling you how hard I've tried to not do exactly that. Because this struggle continues to elucidate a truth in which I find immense comfort. Even if only one side 
has a claim to justice. All who suffer have a claim to compassion. Don't let anyone make you feel ashamed for your compassion. Don't let anyone bully you into growing numb to cruelty. Don't let anyone trick you into thinking that hurting for someone else's pain is wrong. Justice will prevail. But in the wake of that judgment, compassion is what will ensure that we survive it. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you found any of the information in this episode useful, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button, leave a comment or a rating below. If there's somebody in your life who you think would benefit from what we discussed today, go ahead and share this episode with them, your colleagues, your friends, your family, your loved ones, or even on social media. In the meantime, until next week, take care of yourself. Remember the people you love. Reach out to them. Hold them close to you. Tell them how much you value them. And I hope you manage to have as much of a lovely, relaxing day as you can. <laughs>